Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Evaluations of teletherapy to treat depression and anxiety have indicated that outcomes, including symptom reduction and patient satisfaction, are similar to in-person therapy. Extensive prior research has examined cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral activation as efficacious modalities to treat mood disorders. The authors of this article extend this research to investigate in a real-world setting of low-income patients referred from charity primary care clinics the extent to which a brief, adapted, behavioral activation teletherapy intervention is associated with reductions in depression and anxiety. Data from 74 patients completing at least one psychotherapy session indicated that the patients were primarily women and Latina and spoke only Spanish. Patients attended an average of five therapy sessions out of a possible eight. Depression and anxiety symptoms declined over time, with symptom reduction especially likely for patients completing at least four psychotherapy sessions. Furthermore, the majority of patients completing at least one therapy session achieved depression remission at some point during psychotherapy, with over 87% of those achieving remission sustaining this remission until after their final therapy session. The results of this study suggest that a brief behavioral activation teletherapy program can be of use to primary care providers as an adjunct or alternative to medication and measurement-based care for depression. Funding for this project was provided by a waiver from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The pharmacologic treatment of depressed pregnant women presents a clinical dilemma for physicians and patients alike. Depression during pregnancy is associated with a number of adverse pregnancy outcomes, including impaired fetal growth and preterm delivery. Antidepressants can be helpful for these patients and are particularly valuable in cases when non-pharmacologic options have failed or are unavailable. Bupropion also has a U.S. Food and Drug Administration indication for smoking cessation and thus presents a reasonable option for pregnant depressed women wishing to reduce their nicotine use. Smoking cessation rates of women who use bupropion during pregnancy are significantly higher than those of untreated women. The purpose of this article was to evaluate data on birth outcomes following bupropion use during pregnancy. Bupropion juice in the first trimester has been linked with a small elevation in the risk of cardiovascular defects. However, the absolute risk was low, and confounding by indication, such as use for smoking cessation, cannot be excluded. While the risk of miscarriage following prenatal bupropion exposure was higher than that of a control group of women in one study, it remained within the general population rate. While more studies are needed, research to date suggests that bupropion may be a reasonable treatment option for depressed pregnant women who require pharmacotherapy, particularly when they are also attempting to reduce nicotine use during pregnancy. ADHD was originally defined in children but is now recognized to persist into adulthood for some patients. 
Despite this recognition, adult ADHD remains underdiagnosed. This narrative review describes the negative impact of ADHD across multiple functional domains, diagnostic guidelines for adult ADHD and its clinical features, the importance of screening tools and clinical interviews to help evaluate adults for ADHD, and adult ADHD treatment options. Diagnostic guidelines for ADHD now incorporate adult-specific symptoms and behavioral manifestations which may aid in diagnosing adult ADHD. However, diagnosis of ADHD is complicated by symptom overlap between ADHD and psychiatric disorders that might be comorbid with ADHD. Screening tools can identify adults requiring evaluation for ADHD. However, Clinical interviews and longitudinal family histories provide critical information that diagnose ADHD and differentiate ADHD from psychiatric comorbidities. Various pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatments are available for adults diagnosed with ADHD. First-line pharmacologic treatment usually consists of treatment with a psychostimulant, and a variety of short-acting and long-acting formulations are available for use in adults. When developing a treatment plan for adults, it is important to recognize that the demands of adult life, both at work and at home, necessitate symptom control throughout the day and into the evening, and thus a long-acting medication formulation is often preferable. Furthermore, there are important safety concerns, including the potential for drug dependence and serious cardiovascular events, which must be considered before prescribing stimulants. Support for writing and editing of this manuscript was provided by Shire Development LLC to complete healthcare communications. Suicide is an unfortunately common complication of trauma and is more prevalent in PTSD than other anxiety disorders, and a PTSD diagnosis predicts suicide attempts among ideators. The authors of this study looked at suicide risk factors in 480 trauma survivors. This was the first suicide study to use DSM-5 PTSD symptoms and to analyze the relationship between benzodiazepines and suicide in trauma survivors with or without PTSD. The authors hypothesized that several risk factors would be significantly linked with suicide attempts based on escape, reward deficiency, and interpersonal theories of suicide. Those with PTSD were more than 2.5 times more likely to attempt suicide. A PTSD diagnosis was the only variable study that predicted the number of suicide attempts a person had. The PTSD symptoms most strongly linked with suicide attempts were mood cognitive symptoms, which were introduced in DSM-5, and recklessness. Childhood maltreatment predicted suicide attempts with physical abuse survivors being almost three times more likely to attempt suicide. Substance problems also predicted suicide attempts as trauma survivors with alcohol problems were almost three times more likely to attempt suicide. Finally, as the authors predicted based on previous studies showing sedative-related depression and disinhibition, those with benzodiazepine prescriptions were over 2.5 times more likely to attempt suicide. 
Well, this last finding was no longer significant. After adjusting for PTSD symptom severity, the authors recommend that clinicians be cautious prescribing benzodiazepines in those with a history of trauma, for whom benzodiazepines are not evidence-based. The authors conclude that clinicians should screen for childhood maltreatment, PTSD symptoms, and substance-related problems which may help prevent suicides. Psychological trauma is increasingly recognized as being at the core of many psychiatric disorders. It is estimated that as many as 100 to 140 million people in the Arab world suffer from one or more psychiatric disorders. Violence, war, political and social instability, and change have all played a role in increasing the regional prevalence of trauma. This study explored the prevalence, dynamics, and resources available to address such issues in Arab communities, especially regarding clinical strengths and weaknesses of primary health care and mental health centers in identifying and treating trauma-related health and mental health issues. An online survey of 90 psychiatrists and primary care physicians from 17 Arab countries was conducted. Psychiatrists had significantly more patients reporting divorce or separation, recent death of a close relative or friend, and domestic violence. On the other hand, there were other types of traumas with no statistically significant differences in frequency between the two groups of respondents, including psychological effects of war, torture, victims of crime, serious traffic accidents, sexual assault or rape, and child and elderly abuse. Almost half of the respondents reported primary health care practitioners in their country were not trained to provide basic trauma-related mental health services to the general population. Clinical teams comprised substantial numbers of students, but small numbers of community volunteers and school counselors. This study highlights the need to develop awareness and training programs in Arab communities to identify and treat traumatized persons in psychiatric and primary care settings. This study was supported by a grant from the United Arab Emirates. Body dysmorphic disorder patients are obsessed with imagined body defects and have associated difficulty in social functioning. Research is scarce with regard to the body parts that most preoccupy these patients. The authors of this study administered questionnaires to adolescent patients admitted to an inpatient psychiatric hospital who agreed to take part in the study. Patients also had a questionnaire to address age of onset, coping strategies, history of sexual abuse, amount of time spent thinking about their perceived defects, and areas of the body that participants were preoccupied with in addition to the coping strategy used. The results showed that body dysmorphic disorder patients' preoccupation is more with exposed facial body parts, such as skin, lips, nose, teeth, ears, eyes, and historical body parts with asexual connotation. Most patients rate their body dysmorphic disorder as a severe problem, which highlights the importance of diagnosing this condition. Only a very small percentage of the patient population sought help with a psychiatrist, while other specialties contacted for help with this matter were dermatologists, surgeons, and dentists. The authors maintain that these data will help clinicians better understand these patients and assist in their management. 
Having a new baby brings an incredible number of changes to a woman's life and her body, but women rarely talk about the unpleasant side of childbirth. There is growing awareness among patients and providers alike that urinary incontinence is common after having a baby, but talking about loss of stool and gas is much more taboo. Women rarely mention these problems with their provider, hoping it will go away on its own, but this can lead to distress, shame, and no improvement in their untreated condition. In the long run, fecal incontinence is associated with anxiety, depression, and social isolation. While little can be done to prevent fecal incontinence after childbirth, a large range of treatments are available from low-risk, affordable primary interventions to complex surgical treatments. In this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital article, the authors discuss the risk factors, diagnosis, and approach to treatment of postpartum fecal incontinence so you can identify and manage this condition in your patients. Lithium is a drug as old as modern psychopharmacology itself, and its usefulness in the treatment of bipolar disease cannot be understated. Despite lithium's widely acknowledged effectiveness, the drug is underprescribed in the United States in comparison to the rest of the world, and treatment of bipolar illness has largely shifted to the mood stabilizers and neuroleptic drugs. Many psychiatrists finishing residency training today are untrained and uncomfortable prescribing lithium, and its popularity in the United States continues to wane. This drug, once dubbed the gold standard in the treatment of manic depression, has taken a backseat to the newer psychotropics. This report briefly outlines lithium's rich and somewhat controversial history. Catatonia is a neuropsychiatric condition characterized by physical presentations ranging from profound immobility to excessive motor activity. Emotional aspects of catatonia vary clinically between psychomotor retardation and extreme excitability. In the past, catatonia was considered to be a variant of schizophrenia. However, the disorder actually occurs as a clinical expression of many different psychiatric, neurologic, or medical diagnoses. This report describes the case of a woman who presented to the hospital with catatonia the history of the disorder, diagnostic considerations, and treatment recommendations are also discussed. A prompt diagnostic evaluation should identify any underlying diseases with consideration of somatic pathologies, especially those affecting central nervous system function. The workup focuses on a range of metabolic, traumatic, infectious, degenerative, autoimmune, drug-related, or other possible conditions, including psychiatric etiologies. Appropriate intervention should be instituted as quickly as possible to avoid complications like dehydration or deep vein thromboses. Symptomatic treatment commonly includes various pharmaceuticals or electroconvulsive therapy. Benzodiazepine drugs are the most preferred pharmacotherapy. These medications are usually fast-acting and effective, are safe, and remain the catatonia treatment of choice. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also read a new psychotherapy casebook article and browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off.
I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.